Howdy, howdy. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Grazier Podcast. I'm your host, Eli Mack. In this episode, I sit down with my friend Austin Unruh from Trees for Graziers. We're both at the same conference in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where he is actually a speaker and presenter at this event, talking about silvopasture and the benefits thereof. So after the conference, he and I sat down at the hotel and we were able to hammer out this episode for you guys to give you an inside look at silvopasture, why it's important, why you should consider it, and how you do it. So here's Austin. Enjoy. All right, I'm sitting down with Austin Unruh of Trees for Grazers. We're actually here in Lancaster County. We're at a conference where we've been talking about grazing and forage and dry matter and silvopasture, which is where you come in. So, Austin, before we dive into this topic, before you introduce yourself, I want to give you kind of a survey question here, a couple survey questions, and uh, tease people a little bit about some of the topics you're going to be talking about here in this episode of the podcast. So you can just jump in with an agree or disagree, strongly agree, strongly disagree, get out of town, no way, however you want to answer that, and then we'll expand on some of these topics as we go. So you up for that? You bet. All right. Go ahead. So before we define any silver pasture or anything like that, a well-managed grassland is the pinnacle of ecosystem function. <laughs> You're going to get me in a lot of trouble with some grazers. Um, uh, disagree. 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 Okay. Can, right. can I give more context? Sure. To that? Go okay. Ahead. Go ahead. So. Uh, disagree depending on the context. Okay. So if you're in the West, if you're in Western U.S., uh, I don't think silvopasture, silvopasture is going to be much more limited in, let's say, West of like Nebraska, that kind of area, like mm-hmm. Rockies. Um, but if you're talking East of the Mississippi for sure, I'd say no, grasslands are not the pinnacle of, uh, of grazing uh, grazing ecosystems. Sure. Gotcha. Okay. Good to know. So that ties into the second question then, which would be civil pasture is only doable in certain climates or regions. Do you feel like that is a true statement or varying degrees? Varying degrees. Civil pasture is going to look very different in different climates. So it's going to look very different in the east where we're at from down in Texas, from down in like say the southwest where you're going to look up, you're going to do a lot of mesquite or something mm-hmm. like that. Pacific Northwest, you might be looking at a lot of pine silo pasture. It's going to look a lot different depending on the context. But in most areas, I'd say you can do silo pasture, except okay. for certain parts of the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be one of the few exceptions where it's not as applicable. Gotcha. But we'll see. I haven't we'll done see. any projects we'll in like the Great Plains yet. Yeah. I'd, I'd, hope, I'd be welcome to it. That's awesome. All right, next one. Silvo pasture is only beneficial for ruminants. False, completely false. Completely false. Yeah, Very strong on that false, one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good to know. Yeah. All right. Next statement: the benefits of silvo pasture extend beyond shade. True. Oh, true. absolutely. True. Okay. Yeah. All right. There's some softballs right here. <laughs> <laughs> Next one: the hardest thing about establishing trees is protection from livestock. Do you feel like that is the toughest part? Um. I'd say protection from voles has mm-hmm. been, voles have been my nemesis. Mm. Uh, little, you know, people don't know what voles are, because why would you? Uh, little <laughs> rodents that like to uh, girdle trees and want to kill trees. They 
they can be tough because you don't think about it and don't think about them necessarily and they can be sneaky whereas there's nothing sneaky about a thousand pound steer right gotcha 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 all right and then just one last statement for you to weigh in on um the pennsylvania grazier podcast is the best podcast that has or will ever exist this one this one must have come from a fan i think uh, must have been a fan submitted by a fan but i can't say anything other than i fully agree wow i (laughs) did not see that coming thank you so much for that yeah that's that's cool great questions great questions so all of these are revolving around the topic of silvopasture so we're going to go ahead and define that for our listener because austin did you always know what silvopasture meant like did you always know that was a word i was not born with that awareness no so when i started getting into grazing i heard people talking about it and i thought they were saying civil pasture (laughs) which made i was like i don't know what that is does that mean that there's hostile pasture mm, and mm-hmm. civil pasture mm-hmm. and like that's one's exactly, more tame than the other one exactly what it means um you know so i had to actually look up the word civil pasture and be like what the heck are we talking about so austin can you give us your professional working definition of silvo pasture professional working definition well let's let's break down the word first so silvo means like the growing of trees and you get that from the term pennsylvania Mm. which means pens woods Mm -hmm. so we have right there in the word pennsylvania we have the the root of silvo pasture and i don't think i need to to explain the word pasture um so silvo pasture what that is is working with trees and forages and livestock and integrating them into one intentionally managed cohesive system where the sum is greater than each of the parts love that good deal good deal so now that we've kind of broke the ice on silvopasture i'm gonna let you go ahead i'll hand it over to you (laughs) tell us a little bit about your journey you know how how did you and I end up in this room talking mm-hmm. about silvopasture? Mm-hmm. What has been your path through this process? Yeah, so if you had told me five years ago that I would be speaking today at a grazing conference <laughs> um, and I would be speaking about silvopasture, I would have laughed at you and said you're nuts. There's no way that's going to happen. But here we are. So uh, my journey probably started uh, about five years ago uh, when I learned that that Pennsylvania had this goal of planting 95,000 acres of streamside buffers. And I was at that point looking for a way to get into a different career where I was planting trees, ideally having some kind of impact on the land. Um, So when I saw this, I learned that that there's going to be funding put towards this and there would be careers um, here in this conservation space. So initially I thought that I was going to have to get a degree and work for a conservation district. And boy, am I glad that I'm not working for a conservation district because that (laughs) sounds like terrible headache and not fun at all. Um, So what I ended up doing was I ended up starting my own business. I started my business planting trees and doing aftercare of trees in streamside planting. So streamside forest, big conservation practice here in Pennsylvania and a big push towards a lot of stream conservation, water quality, Chesapeake Bay, that kind of thing. So that's what got me into the general tree planting space. And when I was starting in that, I interacted with a couple of farmers who were doing, they were, they were grass farmers, um, uh, grass fed dairies. 
and they're asking me, so how can we take what we're doing over here in this streamside area and plant some trees in the middle of our pastures? And at that point, I was familiar with silvopasture from some of my studies, but I, I knew that there weren't many people that were planting trees in the middle of pastures. So I said, well, I don't know, but let's play around with some stuff and see if we can figure this out. Because I'm always up for a challenge. I'm always up for trying something new. So we just started experimenting. That was about three years ago that we started to do some experimentation, uh, tested different methods, tested different tree shelters, tested different tree genetics too. Um, and then from there, it's really, it's, it's been downhill all the way or uphill all the way. <laughs> it's been a journey. Um, and I've, I've fully enjoyed it. I've learned a lot in the last couple of years about grazing, about trees, about how, uh, different types of trees can complement a grazing operation. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll share, we'll share more about that here, uh, in the next yeah, next little session. And you're you're based here in Lancaster. Mm-hmm. I am based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so we have a Pennsylvanian on the Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Grazer podcast. So mm-hmm. that's cool. Okay, so so you and I are here at this conference. We're talking about silvopasture. Um, a lot of dairy guys in the mm-hmm. crowd. Yep. Um, so they're you know thinking through all the ways that this might make sense for them. So why would somebody turn towards silvopasture? Are there issues that are being addressed? Are there benefits? Mm-hmm to doing this thing because, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of guys that you would probably tell them to plant trees in their pasture and they're Mm going to look at you funny because Mm -hmm. that's not, not a traditional thought. Mm -hmm. So what are we accomplishing or striving towards with Silvo pasture? Okay. So let's back up a little bit and I'll clarify that there's two ways of creating a Silvo pasture. One is you take an existing forest or woodlot or whatever it is and you thin it. And that's, that's, a, that's been the most common way that silvopasture is done here in the United States. Um, there's a lot of grazers out there who talk about silvopasture. Greg Judy is one who's uh, actively managing the woods in order to create silvopasture. So that's one way to do it. I focus on the other way, which we take open pastures and we plant trees into that pasture. That's the big opportunity that, that's here. And the nice thing about that is we start with a blank slate and then we can add in whatever genetics, we want at whatever spacing we want at whatever layout we want so we can really tailor the tree component to the needs of the grazer now there are two things that you can do with adding trees to a pasture so you can add a new enterprise to the farm um, or you can add trees that are going to support your existing livestock enterprises so if you want to add a new enterprise, you could plant chestnuts, you could plant pawpaws, you could plant uh, persimmons for, for human food, all these different things, pecans that are going to be harvested, processed, and sold for human consumptions usually. Um, that is usually, we don't focus on that because there's a lot involved with it. There's the the harvesting, the processing, the marketing, and for a lot of grazers they just want to be grazers like they don't Mm -hmm. want to add additional revenue streams they don't want to add additional labor because they're already stretched thin right they've already got plenty on their plate so that's the one option and for the most part what we're talking about and what we do at trees for grazers is we work with folks who want to add trees that are going to be there to support their existing livestock enterprise so now we're actually getting to (laughs) 
answer the question yeah, yeah. That, the question that you posed. <laughs> so there are a number of things, let's say five main things that we're looking at that trees can address. These are the, the big issues that's sh um, providing shade, mm -hmm. um, so addressing heat stress, uh, providing windbreak to address cold stress, and providing feed during the summer when we have either drought or a summer slump, providing feed during the winter, um, and then also there's soil benefits like nitrogen fixation, cycling of nutrients, um, and carbon sequestration that happen because of adding trees to pastures. So we can go through these and break them down however, however yeah. we want to. Sounds good. Before we do that, can I let me jump back real quick to mm -hmm. just a question that's not the main focus, but somebody might be asking this if they're listening. So you're describing two ways of making silva pasture. We're going to clear or we're going to introduce um, into the pasture setting. So if if somebody's a lover of the woods and we have mm -hmm. this full canopy, you know, are we doing anything beneficial by clearing out and opening up that canopy? Um, you know, are we are we losing anything? Are we gaining anything? Do you have any thoughts there as far as, hey, this is a good direction for the forest in general, or it's just a context-driven thing? That's, that's a great question. Um, I would say that's primarily a context-driven thing and a management thing. Hmm. The thing about clearing a forest to create a civil pasture is it has to be done right in order to be ecologically beneficial. There's definitely ways that it has been done poorly and has been detrimental to the ecology of the system. But you can take you can take a woodlot, especially one that's degraded, that's low quality, thin out the trees, and you can improve it. You can make it better. Um, but it's definitely not it's not a given when you're thinning trees in a forest. It's it's easier to create an ecological benefit when you're planting trees into open pastures. Um, it's almost always going to be a benefit, at least in like the eastern context where, where our land wants to grow trees. In a, in a setting where you have a closed canopy forest, it takes the right management to do it well, to do it in an ecologically beneficial way. But certainly there are ways of like, what you're creating in, in essence is a savanna ecosystem. And a savanna ecosystem, a lot of edge habitat. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that edge habitat is really valuable for deer, for all kinds of wildlife. Yeah. Um, so, in in many contexts, there's there is no edge habitat. So, there's like closed canopy forest, and then there is farmland, and there's no none of that edge right. anywhere. So, by creating a by thinning out a forest, you can create a beautiful savanna with a lot of edge, and that has that has value to a certain subset of wildlife that might otherwise not have a, an ecology that works for them. Gotcha. Nope, that's a great take on that. Not, not the main focus for the conversation, but I could see somebody having a question about that if they were going to go the route of trying to clear and create a silver pasture from a stand of woods already. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll fast forward again back to the benefits that we're talking about as we introduce silver pasture, as we bring silver pasture about. So some of the shade, shelter, food, windbreak. Um, you want to dive into shade first? Let's, or? let's dive into shade. Okay. Yeah. So shade is usually the thing that brings most farmers to silver pasture, brings most farmers to adding trees to their pastures. And there's absolutely benefit to providing shade for your livestock. Um, 
let's see, do we want to get into the economics of it? That's a little bit, that might be a little bit tough to do over a podcast. Sure. Hey, <laughs> getting, numbers are tough over a podcast. <laughs> I, I at least need to see numbers. Um, let's say, I'll, I'll do a little bit. There was some research done at the University of Kentucky, and they showed that you can expect animals to gain maybe an extra pound a day, roughly an extra pound per day if they have access to shade versus those that don't have access to shade. Um, so just right there, and that's for that's in the context of beef. Um, and for dairy, you're going to get more production every day for, for animals that have access to shade versus those that don't. So that right there is the benefit. And then another one that is underrated is actually reproduction. There was a study, I think, at the University of Missouri that looked at reproduction of animals uh, who were bred during the summer months, if I remember right. And the difference, there was a large difference between animals that had access to shade and those that did not have access to shade. There were so many more open cows um, among the test group that did not have access to shade. And that right there, that's that's money that is falling out of your pocket right there. You, the opportunity to have a calf, um, and because of heat stress, that opportunity is gone. Gotcha. Gotcha. And one thing I heard you mention today, which would be a great question if somebody were to ask, you know, when we look at the open grazing model, um, we have attractant sites for cattle to go to. You know, they're going to go mm -hmm. to the stream, they're going to go to the shade, and they're mm -hmm. going to hang out there. And then mm -hmm. they'll come out and graze, but then all those nutrients in the form Correct. of urine and manure go Correct. back to the trees, mm -hmm. go back to the shade. Yep. So now you get away from open and continuous grazing, and we break things up into paddocks, and we're rotating. You know, we break that up a little bit. So now as we bring more trees out into the pasture, what keeps them from doing the same thing just in that particular paddock and, yeah, and you had mentioned absolutely a way to do that absolutely so that's one of the big concerns that people rightly rightly have is that aren't aren't the livestock just going to concentrate all of that all of that manure all those nutrients all that impact right underneath the trees and what we do is when we look to establish a silver pasture we want to have trees that are tall so their canopy is really high up on that tree and there's no lower limbs say for the first 10-15 feet and what you create then is you create a canopy that moves a lot throughout the course of the day. So the livestock that are in the shade of that canopy move a lot throughout the course of the day. So does their impact. So do the nutrients that they carry with them. So you're moving your livestock because the shade is high, is being cast from a canopy that's way high up on the tree. Um, and then we want trees that have a dappled shade. So a lot of light comes through the canopy and still hits the forages beneath. Um, and ideally we want trees that are going to leaf out late in the spring and drop their leaves early in the fall so that they allow more sunlight to come during those times of year when the forages can, are not heat stressed and can make full use of the sunlight coming yeah. in. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then we, oh, uh, we want to space trees out too. So rather than having say one tree per paddock, uh, we want to have trees as evenly spaced as is as is practical on the farm so that the the manure and the the animal usage is well distributed as well gotcha if somebody was looking at their farm and saying yes shade is an issue for us 
um, what species might you coach them towards? And this is going to be mm-hmm. a little bit, yep. you know, regional, a little bit context mm-hmm. specific, but just from your knowledge and what yep. we know here, what would you tell them? Let's say for someone who's in Pennsylvania and the surrounding region, um, uh, a rule of thumb that I use is like the fescue belt. Um, a lot of what I've been doing, a lot of the research that I've been doing applies very well to the fescue belt. Um, species like honey locust, persimmon apply very well to that area. Um, and if you get a little bit north, the, cha- the species change a little bit more. Um, so for those, for those folks, I'd say we generally do trees that are long-term shade trees and short-term shade trees. So our long-term shade trees are going to be honey locust, persimmon, uh, maybe oaks, depending on what the goals are of the farmer. And then our shorter-term species are going to be species like black locust, hybrid poplar, hybrid willow, fast-growing tree species. They're going to get up there really fast. Um, they're going to provide shade. And then over time, we're going to thin those out or, or cut them off or whatever we do. We're going to minimize those trees as the other trees are longer term species come in and start providing shade but you can start getting shade off of a black locust say in three to four years Hmm. after planting so that's that's one of our fastest growing trees in this area yeah yeah and so as you one of the key words that i hone in when you're describing the shade we're going for is a dappled shade Mm -hmm. um so and i've heard some studies and i'd be curious to hear your take on this do you know of a percentage, which was mm-hmm. really hard to, to yeah. gauge just looking at a pasture, but do you know how much shade we can go for um, before we start affecting vegetation? Does the forage get affected if we overshade? Anything like that to be concerned about? Yeah, absolutely. The studies that I recall, and I'm not looking at any right in front of me right now, but the studies that I recall, we're looking at like a a 30 to 50% shade range is about, is about right. I'd actually... I'd probably want to maintain it a little bit lower, around 30% shade. And at that point, it seems that you get a little bit of a bump in cool season forage production, especially during the summer, because your cool season forages are not as heat stressed as in when they're in the wide open. So around 30% shade you don't see reduction in forages. Um, and in fact, in some situations, you see a little bit of a bump, um, especially during those summer months. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Another thing we talk about with benefits of civil pasture would be kind of a shelter aspect mm-hmm. yeah. or maybe a windbreak aspect. Um, I'll get out of your way. I'll let you dive in whichever direction you'd like to go on that. Uh-huh. But yeah, go for it. Absolutely. So one of the common ways that silvopasture is used for windbreak is what's called living barns. So and that's where you would create this dedicated area where livestock can go in the case of a storm or just high winds during the winter and ride out the storm. Um, and then you can, use, you can use windbreaks in any configuration that works well for your farm, whether it's to reduce drifting, whether to reduce uh, wind chill, for your livestock. You can use conifers and those conifers are going to be the, the highest uh, highest quality of a windbreak, right? They're gonna slow the wind the most. You can also use deciduous trees and those tend to be a little bit easier to establish in a pasture, at least from my experience. Uh, so folks who, folks who work with pine plantations, they might have other experiences, but in my experience, 
it's been pretty easy to establish, say, hybrid willows, and those are going to provide some windbreak, not as much, but the benefit to them is you can use their, you can, uh, livestock can feed and browse on, say, hybrid willows. They can't really browse on conifers very well. Then there's this, there's this wild card that I'm really curious to play around with over the next couple of years, and that's bamboo. Mm. And don't anyone shoot me right now. Um, bamboo, there's also a native, there's a native bamboo called uh, river cane. And what's really fascinating about this is that it's one of the very few things that provides windbreak during the winter. It provides additional feed during the summer months and during the winter months. Like it's, it's February right now as we record this and I'm looking outside and the only thing that is green on the horizon other than conifers is bamboo. There's big stands of bamboo and they're bright green um, and they are, there is nutritional value right there in, uh, in those bamboos. And river cane is something that was very common, especially in the east, southeast, um, up until the last 100, 200 years, and it, it was the backbone of the, the cattle industry, especially in the southeast, for hundreds of years. Um, they would let their, their livestock roam, uh, like you would, have your, you would have your homestead and then you, you would just let your livestock roam. You maybe you put a notch in their ear or brand on them and then you go collect them later on and they would spend a lot of the winter being protected from the winds by these cane brakes and they would be browsing on these cane brakes as well. So that was their feed source. Now we don't have them anymore, at least not much of them because they were um, they were really great for grazing and they were often overgrazed then and they occupied some of the best most fertile bottomland as well so when it came time for people to clear an area for corn for cotton whatever it was they would go they would look for cane breaks and they would burn them down and then they would plow they would plow them up and and um and plant their crops so that's why we don't have the big cane breaks of river cane anymore that used to dominate a lot of the landscape but i am really curious about seeing how grazing can potentially make use of this native species that is is no longer a common thing yeah that's really cool and you've hinted at bamboo before here and there and i've looked into it and i don't i don't know how to do it all right but it's pretty exciting to me and i'm one of those people that i have some of that bottom land you know mm -hmm. i'm i'm kind of the valley in my little area so I have some, some wet drainage and a creek or a crick where I'm from, mm -hmm. we say crick, um, that runs right through the middle. So some of the lower wet areas, I have some really, uh, I have an itch to, to plant something that's going to add to it, not mm -hmm. detract, but really fit in. So mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. Really cool. Bamboo. Hey, just a quick break in the conversation so I can tell you about Regensylvania. Regensylvania is a network and a movement that I've started here aimed at regenerating Pennsylvania through hearts, minds, and stomachs, or to say relationship, education, and commerce. And we're doing that right now. We're onboarding farms county by county, collecting regenerative farms that are looking to impact their communities and get with customers. So if you're a regenerative farm in PA and you would like to join our Regensylvania network, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram under Regensylvania as well as if you're a customer just looking to buy product from a regenerative farm in your area, in your county, somewhere local, shoot us a message so that we can connect you with a local regenerative farmer.
back to the conversation. So we talked about shade. We're talking about shelter, windbreak. Um, what else can these trees provide for us? So let's take a look at summer fodder. So everywhere, trees have always been used as a feed of last, res uh, re last resort, especially in the case of a drought. So a couple summers ago, we had a pretty severe drought that came through uh, northern Pennsylvania. And I got a call from a couple clients saying, what? I need to drop trees because I don't have access to hay anymore. There's no hay. All the forages are eaten up. I need to drop trees. Which ones should I drop? Um, and that's, that's unfortunately something that happens routinely. Like it happens uh, pretty regularly, not just droughts, but the summer slump. Like everyone is familiar with the summer slump. We just don't produce as much forages as in the spring. So what we can do, we have the opportunity with trees to plan ahead and to plant ahead by adding trees to our system that are going to provide a, a reserve of forages during those summer months or during a drought. Um, additionally, what we can do with those is we can, anything, any leaves, any branches that are not used to feed livestock during the summer can also be used to feed livestock during the fall when we're stockpiling forages. So if you're shooting to decrease your hay costs and stockpiling forages, you can feed the leaves of these trees. So hybrid poplars, hybrid willows, mulberries, basswoods, all kinds of different trees that we can use for this. We can cut those branches, drop them for livestock. They can eat those and every day that they're eating tree leaves is a day that they're not gonna be eating your forages and you can let those stockpile. So the reason that trees are work so well for this is that they're deep rooted. They can access moisture from way down on the ground where a lot of our forages can't access. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to give them the resiliency to still be green and, uh, and high quality fodder during the middle of summer. So how do we take leaves of trees and actually physically feed them, mm -hmm. um, yep. you know, cause they're obviously up here and the mm -hmm. cattle are down here. How do yeah. we, how do we actually do that? So there's two ways of making tree leaves ac accessible to livestock. One is what's called coppicing. And by coppicing, we mean cutting a tree or a shrub down to the ground and letting it re-sprout. And what it does then is those tree, those leaves are accessible to the livestock. And then we allow livestock access or inhibit access using electric fencing. The other way of doing it is what's called pollarding. And with pollarding, we're, we're cutting the tree above browse height. And then we can very clearly control when livestock have access and when they don't have access to that fodder. Yeah, no, that's cool. And that's something that's another thing that I had to look up when I was reading about this. I'm like, OK, so they're, they're eating. How are they getting the leaves? Like, well, how are we doing this? So, yeah, we can we can prune them and cut them. And I've even read from what you're saying that that act of harvesting can actually benefit the longevity of Absolutely. the tree species. Yep. Right. So take a willow. Willows tend to be short lived. They grow really fast, but then they decline. So I generally they might be growing for 20 years and then they're dying for 20 years and they have a short lifespan. And what you can do by pollarding is you're keeping them in a juvenile actively growing phase. So they, and that extends their lifetime. It's similar to keeping 
um, keeping forages in a vegetative state by continuously coming back and, and, uh, and harvesting from them or grazing them. Same thing with the trees by routinely cutting them every year or every couple of years, you're keeping them in an actively growing phase so that they don't experience that decline. And you can keep a tree that otherwise wants to live for 40 years alive for a hundred plus years. Right. And that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're, absolutely. you're gaining the benefit, but also paying into that tree's yep. lifespan. The tree appreciates it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great, great working together there. So you covered fodder for drought. Does this only mm -hmm. apply for like summer months, warm months? Is there benefit to these trees for other seasons? I'd say any, any time that you can feed tree fodder, uh, during the growing season, it's going to give you additional feed during the fall and, and winter. Anytime that you can take pressure off of your forages, especially like during the summer, mm -hmm. um, that'll give you more forages in the fall and that your forages won't be as stressed so they can rebound better in the fall when the temperatures come back down. And then if you're stockpiling your forages, um, you're going to be able to better stockpile forages um, if you have access to tree fodder, you can feed that. And then that's one more day that you don't have to feed hay during mm -hmm. the winter. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. Shade, shelter, windbreak, food. What else am I missing? What yeah. Else? So uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, mast, mm -hmm. mast, uh, crops. And by mast, I mean anything that drops from the trees. So that's Fruits like apples and persimmons, uh, plums, that kind of thing. Uh, nuts, so acorns, hazelnut, or yeah, hazelnuts, uh, hickories, pecans, that kind of thing, and pods. And specifically, there we're looking at honey locust. Um, honey locust is probably our number one tree in this region. It's not going to be applicable everywhere, but in this region, and especially during uh, in what would be the fescue belt, um, a little bit like Pennsylvania and South, a little bit warmer than us, it is a fantastic tree and probably the number one tree for a silvopasture. Gotcha. The reason is it hits all of the boxes. So it it is a nitrogen fixing tree, so it's gonna bring more fertility to the land. It's like a big oversized clover that's pumping nutrition, uh, <laughs> pumping nutrients into your soil um, it's got a dappled shade, so it allows a lot of light to come through the canopy and hits the forages beneath. And the kicker is the pod that is dropped by honey locust. It's high in energy. It can be up to 35, 37% sugar, and it's dropping during the winter months when it's most needed by livestock. So your, your livestock need the most energy during the winter months to keep their body condition um, or to gain weight. And these high energy pods are dropping from November through January, and then they're staying good on the ground for another couple of months after that. So you have this high energy feed source that's being made available at just the right time of year. And that's why that's why honey locust gets my nomination for number one silvo pasture yeah. tree in this area. Well, yeah, I was gonna ask you. So if I held your toes to the flame and made you pick like mm -hmm. your favorite, that's you would probably say honey locust. That's my favorite. Yeah. Okay. And I can hear some people saying already, honey locust. That's a terrible tree. That's a thorn <laughs> tree. And that's absolutely the case. And um, to that, I would say um, genetics is what it's all about in this case. Genetics, genetics, genetics. So um, I was out at Greg Judy's farm 
a little bit less than a year ago at one of his workshops that he was he was doing and I was poking around so while everyone else was looking at the cattle I was walking <laughs> around and looking at all the trees right so I noticed that on his farm he's got some trees that some honey locusts that have thorns from the bottom all the way to the top just thorns everywhere they're loaded and then there's other trees that don't have a single thorn on them so there's a genetic component there right um, and then in terms of the pods i've done i've done forage analysis on pods of different trees some have come in as low as 17 percent sugar others have come in as high as i think 37 percent sugar and i've read about others that were almost at 40 percent sugar so there's a big genetic diversity there of sugar content energy content and so what we do is we go out and we select for uh, parents, parent trees that are really high in sugar up in the, those like higher 30 ranges. Um, and then we're taking seedlings or we're taking seeds from those and growing seedlings out of those trees mm -hmm. or out of those uh, from that parentage. Mm -hmm. So we're selecting and then we're also selecting for trees that are thornless. Now, their seedlings are not necessarily all going to be thornless, unfortunately. There is some genetic diversity in there. Um, but they're going to tend to be more thornless. Uh, they're going to tend to, more of their seedlings are going to be thornless than if you were to pick uh, seeds from a wild tree. So gotcha. genetics is a big thing. I'd say we're only just scratching the surface of what can be done with honey locust. Mm -hmm. um, that's, so that's what I just described was if we go about through, go about it through selecting for seedlings and the the ultimate way the most foolproof way of getting really high quality genetics in honey locusts is by grafting so by grafting you're taking a little bit of tissue from a well-known uh, variety of honey locusts and you're grafting that you're kind of splicing it onto a, uh, a generic uh, tree of, of middling quality and from that you get you're cloning this really high quality tree that's going to give you high energy pods, lots of yield, and there's going to be zero thorns on that. Mm -hmm. So those are a couple different ways to get these really high quality trees established that are going to feed your livestock year over year for the next century. Yeah. And that's, that's huge. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, yeah. pe I don't think people realize how much we're leaving on the table. Mm -hmm by not including these in our, our yeah. grazing operations. Yeah, that's absolutely. crazy, absolutely, absolutely. crazy. Uh, so you're talking a little bit about genetics. If somebody is looking for genetics and you have some experience here, so where, where are they going to get these genetics? How do they know they've got good genetics mm -hmm. or, or where to go to get the good genetics? Or... There's not many people that are growing out improved variety honey locust for pod production. Mm -hmm. Most of the the honey locusts on the market are for low um, low thorn mm -hmm. and, and actually low pod production because most honey locusts are out there for street trees or mm -hmm. ornamentals in people's front yards. And there they don't want pods, right? So there are only a couple sources and what we're trying to do is we're trying to be the the main source for grazers and produce them at a much higher quality or sorry much higher quantity than anyone else is doing so most folks are doing it at like a scale of a couple hundred growing out a couple hundred a year <clears throat> we're going to be sending out uh tens of thousands of seeds to be custom grown so right now we do sell we do sell 
uh, trees via retail, via our website. We're getting out of that. Uh, we just don't want to do retail sales anymore. It's, uh, it's, we want to focus on other parts of the business, sure. like developing large silo pasture projects. Sure. So what we're actually doing is we're going to be partnering with other nurseries to custom grow this seed stock for us. And then people can order straight from them and gotcha. we don't ever have to be involved. So yeah. that's what I'm really looking forward to that. Um, cause that's going to take a big thing off of my plate and it's going to let the nurseries do what nurseries do best. Mm -hmm. Like they've already figured all that out. They've, they've figured out shipping and all that kind of stuff. So we're just going to let them do that. And we're going to ship them seed. Um, and then we're going to put our, our customers, in in touch in contact with those nurseries that we're working with and that we trust to to produce a really high quality product yeah so i'd say the best pe if people are interested in high quality genetics sign up for our our newsletter um on, be on our mailing list at treesforgrazers.com and then you'll be included in all the updates when those come out gotcha gotcha so are there any other benefits that I'm leaving off the table of why we should get these trees in our pastures? So there's there's this benefit of of soil, benefits to the soil that I'm just really starting to explore in depth. Um, one is nitrogen fixation, and that's that's something that's been known for a long time, is that certain trees will fix nitrogen. Black locust is the probably the best nitrogen fixer in our context. Um, and then honey locust as well. Alder is another one that fixes nitrogen in, in wet soils. Um, although we don't use a whole lot of alder in silvopasture system, there's not a ton of fodder value there. Um, so there's, there's nitrogen fixing trees and those obviously are bringing more fertility to the soil. There's also this thing where trees are going to, through their deep root systems, they're going to bring nu nutrients up that otherwise forages don't have access to. Mm -hmm. And they're going to bring them up into the tree and they're going to cycle those nutrients. So they're going to make, take these nutrients from way down deep and they're going to make them available to the, the top soil levels because they're dropping leaves, because they are, um, they're losing their fine roots near the surface, the soil surface every year. Um, so, that's another thing is is that cycling of nutrients from deep down underground um, and then another one is is just the additional soil biology and that's that's the thing that really intrigues me and there's so much to it and so much that I don't understand yet is the the ways that adding trees and this big new uh, type of plant to to pasture systems is going to change the soil biology. Presumably it's going to bring in a lot more fungal um, uh, fungal life systems, life forms um, that are going to create a balance there. Um, and I mean, really, <laughs> I'm this. This is where I start to feel out of my out of my my pay grade is where we start <laughs> talking about soil biology. But I'll just say I'll just say that um, I can. My guess is that there's whole worlds of untapped potential here where by bringing in trees that we're going to drastically increase the, the activity of our soil biology. And then what we also know is that through adding trees into, uh, into pastures, we can increase the rate of carbon sequestration. That's mm -hmm. been shown at study after study. 
that in this context, like in the Eastern United States, where the land wants to grow trees, you're going to increase the rate of carbon sequestration per acre because you're using the best parts of grasslands, the best mm. parts of grazing land, and the best part of trees and forests. And you're, yeah. you're marrying the two and you're getting a symbiotic relationship where the two are, uh, are better than each one of them separate. Right. So a study that I was looking at the other day, they were looking at how much carbon was in a, an open pasture, how much carbon was in a forest, and how much was in a silvopasture. And they found that the carbon sequestration rate was the highest in the silvopasture because it had some yeah. of the best of, of both of those systems. Yeah, and I love that. And tying both those thoughts that you just presented together is a very holistic thought. You know, we're, we're talking about depth of roots. You know, mm -hmm. so not only are we comparing forage to forage, whose roots are going the deepest to pull minerals. Now you're bringing in a whole new stacking of enterprises mm -hmm. with brush and shrubs and trees and roots mm -hmm. that are going even further pulling stuff up and then dropping, you know, nutrients back in that whole mineral cycle. So from a holistic standpoint, that's the kind of stuff that gets me really excited because mm -hmm. we see this layering process <clears throat> where everything is working together for the good of the whole, yeah. just like you said yeah. at the onset of the yeah. episode. So I think that's fantastic. Um, and Austin, I guess I would be encouraged to have some coaching from you as maybe mm -hmm. some other people would. Like I have planted a few trees in my day. Yep. Uh, some of them did great, some of them the opposite, you know. So if we're going to go out there and plant trees, will you have any advice or suggestions about how to properly, is there a proper way that we should plant a tree? How to properly plant a tree. Um, so maybe let's step back a little bit sure. first and say, before I'm going to go out there and plant a tree, what I want is I want a good plan. Okay. So, and that's, that's why I just recently put out um, a book called The Grazer's Guide to Trees, and that's going to be available on our website. Hmm. The goal there is to walk people through from point A to point B, all the way through how to get a tree established in a pasture. And we start out with understanding why would I add a tree to my pasture? And that's just what the stuff that we just covered of, of the, the problems heat stress, cold stress, that kind of thing that trees can solve. So first we, we want to identify what are the problems on this farm that we want to address and what trees, what tree species are going to address those. I think we've done a pretty good job of that here mm -hmm. in this, uh, in this podcast yes, so sir. far. Um, and then we're going to look at what, what's the layout that's going to work for me? How do we plant them? What are the priority areas that are going to, what are the areas on my, on my farm that I want to prioritize as the first planting areas. Um, and then to get specifically to planting a tree, uh, I mean, that's not rocket science, especially in terms of like, we're digging a hole, right? Sure. <laughs> we're digging a hole, putting sure. the tree in the ground. And then the, the real trick about getting a tree established in a pasture is how do you protect that tree? Mm. So how do you protect that tree from cattle? How do you protect that tree from voles, from rodents, from deer? Um, I know you've got those woolly mammoth animals yeah. that, with the big long horns <laughs> that just want to rub up on stuff. Yes, they do. So that's that's not going to make it any easier to protect trees uh, from those. But the the system that we found to work the best is uh, a 
a product called a Plantra Tree Shelter, and we do sell those, um, which is a, a tube, a plastic tube with a fiberglass stake that's holding it up, and that's placed around each tree. And we protect that shelter from your woolly mammoths by <laughs> having a single strand of poly wire um, that's going to and keep it hot, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you keep it hot, it'll keep the animals off. So that's how we protect a tree in the middle of a pasture from livestock. Um, and then we have we have different things to protect against voles. So we have these little uh, spiral guards that we put around the base of a tree to protect against voles. Um, that's a physical barrier to keep them from getting in there and girdling the tree. Yeah. Um, we want to put mulch around the tree. That's very important, especially if, if you don't want to go out there and water all the time, mm -hmm. you want to put mulch around the tree and that's going to provide, uh, protection. It's, it's going to reduce the amount of, of competition that that tree has with other vegetation, especially in the first couple of years as, as it's getting established. Um, and it's going to conserve moisture in the soil right around that tree. And that's going to give it a big boost in the first couple of years. Gotcha. So um, I think I covered most of it. So protecting the tree from, from livestock, from wildlife, uh, providing mulch, uh, protecting that tree shelter from, mm -hmm. uh, from animals via electric fencing. That's the easiest way to protect tree shelters is with electric yeah. fencing. That's the most foolproof. If you keep that hot, animals won't mess with it. If, if it's not practical and it's not always practical to have a, a line of poly wire protecting your row of trees, then we'd be looking at something else. We've used barbed wire, um, to protect trees. I don't love barbed wire. Uh, I would, I'm looking to get away <clears throat> from barbed wire sure. at this point. That's what we're using. Um, uh, I think, we're going to, we're going to play around with different things and then we'll let people know what, what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Um, that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. I'm, I'm going to say I'm really excited for what silver pasture is going to look like in five, 10, 20 years, mm -hmm. because I can only imagine that when rotational grazing started and you can probably speak to this, uh, being at Ken Cove, there just weren't the tools mm -hmm. and the, the yeah. knowledge about how do you how do you how do you rotate livestock like mm -hmm. all the tools that we currently have and now moving into like gps collars and all these different things that are available on the market now right those those didn't exist 20 years ago there's right. all these things that didn't exist 20 years ago we're only two years into it ourselves like mm -hmm. we're we've only been playing around with adding trees to pastures for two years and we've tested a bunch of stuff but I am really looking forward to what people come up with, people who are more creative than me or tinkering around in a different context, because I think there's going to be great ways of protecting, uh, establishing trees in the middle of a pasture that are going to be even better than what we've found so far. Mm -hmm. um, the electric fencing is super useful, super, uh, super handy. Uh, if, it, if anyone has, uh, has a, a slick means of protecting a tree in the middle of a pasture that doesn't involve electric, let me know because I want to know. Yeah. Um, I think we'll we'll play around with like different adding a second post or a third post mm -hmm. or a rebar or something like that. What we need to do though is we we try to strike a balance between something that's going to absolutely work. It's like bomb proof, mm -hmm. but then something that's going to be affordable. So we strike we try to strike that balance because um, sure you can get a tree established in the middle of a pasture if you put Fort Knox around it. Right. But Fort Knox is expensive. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so the way that you've been doing things, the, the tree shelter is not just physically protecting, it's giving a little bit of a greenhouse effect, yep. but then that stuff is also self-insulated, and you basically, yep. in some mm -hmm. cases, have used them as the post for your electric twine or Absolutely. whatever you're doing. Yep, so that, in some cases, we use the tree shelter as the paddock boundary yeah. instead of having a fiberglass post. Right, mm -hmm. right, that's yep. very cool. Yep, it's very cool. handy. Uh, quick question with the mulch. Do you have a suggestion how far out from the base of the tree or maybe how far up the tree the mulch yeah. should go? Or like... So what you don't want to do is you don't want the mulch to be in contact with the, the base of the tree. Okay. And having that plastic tree shelter around the base of the tree is uh, it allows you to pile the mulch right up against, against that tree shelter. Um, the more the merrier is the mm -hmm. is the the easy answer. Um, trees, the more moisture you can make available for that tree, and less competition it's going to have with other forages, the better it's going to be, and the faster it can it can grow. So, I've done what I've done in the past is I've done say like a five gallon bucket of wood chips around each tree. That works pretty well. If anything, I would go a little bit heavier. Yeah. Um, you can also you can use all kinds of stuff. You can use hay. You can use uh, grass clippings. You can use mm -hmm. um, some people have used uh, gravel around the base of each tree, and that's not necessarily that's not as much for vegetation control as it is for a physical barrier against voles mm -hmm. because those voles they want to <laughs> they want to girdle the trees and and destroy all of our hard work. It's right. It's really it's tough emotionally for me when I go through a pasture and I pull up a tree that's like six feet tall and it just yanks out because it's been girdled all around. Right. Um, I don't want to like put people off to it. Um, but there, you do need to have a, a solid means of, uh, protecting your trees from, from voles. That's one of the things that is probably overlooked the most is, uh, rodents in yeah. the field. Right. Um, so yeah, more, the more mulch, the merrier. Okay. Typically. And I won't drag out this question for you, just a general, let's assume I did everything correctly to establish my tree. What kind of percentage range of survival or success could I maybe anticipate? If, let's just assume <laughs> I did it right. Let's, you know, Let's assume you did it right. Let's assume you used healthy stock, mm -hmm. healthy nursery stock that was, that was treated well. Um, if everything, if everything goes well, <laughs> if everything goes well, right. Um, if that happens, then I'd say like 90% of your tree stock should make it. Gotcha. But that like mother nature throws all kinds of stuff your way. And sometimes there's just stuff that you can't, you can't anticipate. Um, but if everything is done well, I'd say it, it's not outrageous to expect a 90% survival rate. Mm -hmm. Um, we do tend to recommend to folks, especially when you're first getting started, to start with cheaper trees, trees that are resilient. So like a black locust, uh, a hybrid poplar, those are trees that are resilient. They'll take some abuse. They'll come back. Um, and they're cheap too. Like they're, say they're two bucks. So if you lose one of those, no problem, sure. right? You'll just replace it. Whereas if you want to get started and, you, and you've never planted trees before or never planted trees at in any kind of scale in a pasture, I wouldn't start with like, a $40 grafted tree. Mm -hmm. Start with a, a seedling tree and get your experiment, get your ex experimentation and your experience in with those trees. And if you lose 50% the first year, 
find, especially if you're only starting with say 10 trees to get that hands-on yeah. experience. Then you can build from there, take that experience that you gained and apply it to the next phase of planting. Gotcha. Um, and then eventually you can be planting those $40 grafted trees because you've gained that confidence and the experience to do it well. Hmm. Gotcha. And again, I won't push you too specific here because there's a lot of resources in your book to, to talk about stuff like this. Any general advice as far as rows between or distance between mm -hmm. rows or mm -hmm. distance between trees? And usually we're talking rows because that's what's easier to fence. Correct. It's, it's easier to fence rows. It's easier to maneuver through rows. So that's a lot of what we're, uh, yeah. what we're about is making this very practical and making it laying it out in a way that works for the farm. So um, there's the, the general guideline is this, is that we want the space between rows to accommodate all of your equipment and generally be in a multiple of your equipment width. So if you have a 30 foot mower, you want to go at least 35 feet. So you have a little bit of buffer mm -hmm. on each space on each on each end, um, probably more like 60 feet or 90 feet between rows right and then space between trees in the row it also again it depends on your equipment right what do you need to how much um, how much space you need to get through those rows um, we're a common spacing yeah. it's tough to, to give a common spacing but one of the common spacings would be like um, 40 feet between rows and then 15 or 30 feet between trees in the row gotcha but it's all going to depend on what the goals are of the farmer and um and what resources we have available gotcha good deal no matter how you graze ken cove has the gear any forage anywhere with any livestock ken cove has the supplies you need to make your grazing operation more efficient for fencing that holds back livestock and not your productivity visit www.kencove.com. All right, so we're talking about why this is so beneficial and such a great a great potential to add to any farm or pasture land. Is this something that is yet common practice? Like um, if we would talk to the NRCS about this, is this something that they're going to jump on board with? Or like how, how does that play out? <laughs> Good luck. Um, so... In general, silvopasture is not a very common practice in, especially in our area. There are areas in the country where it's more common. So the southeast, it's uh, more common from what I understand. I haven't done like a tour or anything like that down there, but it's more common to do silvopasture. And usually they're doing like a pine plantation silvopasture where they're running beef in amongst their pines. Um, from my understanding, that's also the case in the Northwest, similarly like a pine plantation silvopasture. Now in our area, silvopasture is not common. Uh, I should qualify that by saying what is relatively common, um, is for people to take existing woods and thin them. What's not common at all is for people to take open pastures and plant trees into them. So at this point, Pennsylvania does not offer funding for planting trees into pastures. A lot of the other states in the north, uh, sorry, northeast and mid-Atlantic region don't provide a whole lot of funding. Some do, but it's at a level that it's, it's not really worth a whole lot. The areas where it's 
most of the silver pasture funding is and i boy i wish i could spend i wish i could <laughs> get that funding here is iowa illinois indiana missouri and wisconsin now wisconsin just added some good silver pasture funding this last year those five states are the ones uh, that have the best per tree silo pasture funding rates through their state NRCS. It's something like 20, it depends a little bit on the state, but something somewhere between say 26 and $29 per tree that can be uh, cost shared for silo pasture. And that's really gonna cover almost all of your expenses, if not all of your expenses for planting gotcha. trees in the pasture. And that's, that's super valuable because there is so much long-term benefit to adding trees to pastures. But the caveat is that it's, it's a real investment up front. Planting trees in the pastures is nothing like the investment in, say, a brand new tractor or mm. even buying land. But with buying land or a tractor, you get a benefit on day one. Mm -hmm. With silvopasture, it requires patience. So you're not going to get benefit for, say, five years. And even at five years, you're only starting to see the benefit. So what we need is means of reducing the upfront cost to producers to invest in silvopasture. So state NRCS funding is available in some states. And the states that I mentioned, they have really good funding. Other states like Virginia, Tennessee, those ones have... Uh, pretty good funding um, and then there's another others like maryland new jersey that have uh they have funding it's not great but they have some funding pennsylvania we don't have anything right. <laughs> so we've had to be very creative in how we access funding in the long term i think it it will make sense for grazers to invest their own money in silvopasture and that can be through a loan. And a loan is a really good tool for silvopasture because it allows you to stretch out the cost of investing in trees over a long time period um, and not have to take a big cash flow hit right away, yeah. especially when you're not seeing a lot of the benefit right away. So if you're in an area where there's good funding, fantastic, make use of it, and then figure out how to, how to tap into that. It's through like the state NRCS how to tap into that and start investing in mm -hmm. silver pasture for your land. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for anybody listening, depending on where you're at, it's worth looking into because you might be surprised by what you find and what, what is out there as funding. But I agree with you, Austin, that the value is there regardless. So yes. like me as a grazier, if I already understand, you know, like Greg Judy alludes to all the time, you know, hey, put the equipment away, go buy something yep. with four legs and mm -hmm. it's gonna appreciate in value. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. a lot of us grazers have already agreed to that mentality and I don't see why this is any different. So mm -hmm. for me, instead of buying the machinery that's gonna rust and depreciate, yep. I buy cattle. Um, well, guess what? It's gonna be, for my highlands, it's gonna be that third year before I see a calf on the ground. Yeah. And that's where the epigenetics really kick in and mm -hmm. start to really benefit. Mm -hmm. So for graziers who are already geared to think about where true value actually lies, yeah. I think that silvopasture is a no-brainer because it's, it's like that mama cow, mm -hmm. we're planting this tree, it's gonna be there for the future, mm -hmm. it's gonna do all these things that we talked about yeah. earlier. Yeah. So 
I, I get it, you know, let, let's pursue the government funding, let, let's show them that there is a need and a desire for this, but at the same time, the value is there regardless it for is. us to just grab a hold of it and do it. It is, yeah. Yeah, yep. 100%. Absolutely. 100%. Okay, so awesome, I'm gonna be selfish with you for a minute, if I can, since you're here and you're, you're talking into myself and I'm gonna ask you my questions. You bet. Um, so along my creek on the property, I have a lot of shag bark hickory and honeysuckle. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of people would think of the honeysuckle as kind of a nuisance um, and maybe cut it out. And I'm glad I didn't because the cattle have responded to it. There's wildlife there and all kinds of good stuff. Is there anything you can tell me specific about shagbark hickory or honeysuckle or maybe other species that you know of that people traditionally view as, mm -hmm. um, you know, we should get this out of there versus maybe they should leave it? Absolutely. So typically I'm not a big fan of honeysuckle in particular, but do your cattle eat it? They do. Okay. They then do. It's, it's providing a service for you. True. So, so long as something is providing a service for you and it's not getting out of control, mm -hmm. you're the one in the driver's seat. You're the one who can manage that to suit your needs. So if it's, if it's providing a service for you, say in providing leaf fodder during the summer, keep it around. Mm -hmm. um, it's better to manage what you already have than go out there and plant new yeah. stuff. I mean, you can plant new stuff, but if you already have good stuff that's providing value for you, the more people can learn to manage what they already have, the better. Mm -hmm. So for you, it's honeysuckle. Yeah. And maybe it's, uh, maybe you have to go in there and cut it down to a lower level where your livestock can, can access it. That might be one of the management things that you'd be looking at. Um, but if they're already, if it's already there providing shelter and uh, wildlife habitat and forage, Hey, why not? Um, and with shagbark hickory, the really interesting thing about shagbarks from an ecological perspective is that bats tend to live in those okay. that space underneath those that yeah. bark that's coming off, that's peeling off of those shagbarks. So the bats are going to live underneath hmm. there and that's going to reduce your, uh, your insect population on your farm. So that's your pest control nice. right there. Nice. That's your pest control is in those shagbark <laughs> hickories, the bats that are hanging out right underneath there. That's awesome. Yep. No, that's that's great. So thankfully, I, I've had some coaching from mentors and even my dad early on, you know, was pretty quick to teach me, you know, let's let's not just go tearing things up. Like mm -hmm. things are there for a reason. Things mm -hmm. are doing things. Yeah. So let's, you know, let's learn it first before we decide mm -hmm. how to manage yep. it. So yep. that's really cool about there, the bats. There's definitely scenarios where something like that can get out of control. Sure. Where it's just beyond the management, beyond what works for your farm. And then you go in there and you thin it out mm -hmm. and you... But especially if you have if you have animals that are going to browse, well, yeah. that's going to be great browse yeah. for sheep, for goats, for island cattle. Um, there's ways. Even say you have a a plot of honeysuckle that's totally out of control, and you want to thin it. It's also an opportunity to give browse to your livestock. So if you want to go thin it, maybe you thin it during the summer. Right. So you're experiencing a drought or you're experiencing your summer slump. Go in there during the summer, lop off the top branches, yep. feed them to your livestock, and you're you're killing two birds with one stone. Right. Yep. No, that's a that's a great suggestion. Um, and even this past grazing season, something that I'm keying into that I'm going to have to change for this coming season is that uh, browsable plants and trees. Um, don't recover like grasses. Mm, yeah. So yeah. even though they're in that paddock and I'm timing my moves for that paddock, mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, I'm to the point where I've perhaps overgrazed some of this honeysuckle yeah. and now I need to fence that out um, mm -hmm. and allow more recovery mm -hmm. time. Cause instead of, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like stuff you, as we're browsing trees, instead of uh, it growing back from that leaf or that solar panel, yeah. we're pulling from root energy. Am I correct? Do I have a proper understanding of that? Or that's a good question. I can't say I know for sure okay. of how exactly that's working in that yeah. in a honeysuckle. I would imagine if you're leaving a lot of the leaves, then probably some of the energy is coming from the remaining leaves. True. If you're stripping a lot of the leaves off, then yes, it would be coming from from the roots. That's right. the only place it it have to come from. Yeah, and that's something that I've keyed into just looking around. I'm like, okay, this next round, I'm going to need to let those rest and recover. Mm -hmm stay out of there let's save them for yeah. the drought time let's yeah. you know let's do something else so mm -hmm. no those are those are all great points all good suggestions uh if somebody was looking to um identify what they already have because mm -hmm. i'm always coaching people learn what you have first work with what you have you know kind of get some mm -hmm. skills there and then you can go different directions so if they want to uh, figure out what kind of trees they have on their property. Do you have any suggestions as far as identification apps or field guides, anything like that? I I can't really recommend a lot. Um, there's so many good field guides, so many good apps out there. Um, the one that I mentioned in my book is called the Sibley Guide to Trees. Um, and it's an identification guide. It's useful for that, but Partially the reason why I list it is just because it's beautiful. It's a very well, very nice identification guide, but there are so many different guides out there. Just pick one up that's that's uh, written for your context. So yeah. wherever you are, or pick up an app um, and that'll make it very easy for you. And and I like what you what you said there of learning to use what's already in your context, learning to identify what you already have on your farm um, so that you can manage that for, yeah. uh, for your livestock operation. Yeah. I mean, we have to be able to observe, call things by name mm -hmm. and speak the language yep. if we're going to make the right call, yep. you know? Absolutely. Um, this is all about the more knowledge and insight grazers have as we interact with the natural world, the better we're going to be able to, uh, manipulate it use it and uh, harness it for for the benefit of livestock and the benefit of families livelihoods and ecosystems mm -hmm. yeah so Absolutely. all the more knowledge we can get about a broader range of species be it grasses or legumes or forbs or trees or shrubs the better it's going to serve the farm yeah 100 percent so that was in regard to identification resources are there books or university studies or resources that you would point people towards if, as they're ready to dive into silvopasture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to put a shameless plug in Go right for it. here. Go for it. So <laughs> if folks want a guide to getting trees established in an active pasture, The Grazer's Guide to Trees is the book that I just put out. We literally picked up the books from the printer last week and they were hot off the press. The box itself was hot. <laughs> um, so I developed this book um, for all the people that I work with so that they would have an introduction to how we get trees established in a pasture, why we get a tree, trees, why we get trees established in a pasture, all those things. And if you, there's no other resource like it for adding trees to pastures. So you can buy that 
at treesforgrazers.com. Mm-hmm. And for anyone looking to add trees into a solo pasture, I'd say that is the starting point. Um, I'll, I'll give plenty of other recommendations too. So especially for folks looking to take an existing woodlot and thin it, I highly recommend the book called Silvopasture by Steve Gabriel. Um, I don't do a whole lot of thinning woodlots, and that book is one that addresses that topic very well. So for anyone, and he's one where I've learned a lot from about managing, say, brows and shrubs that you're trying to clear out. That was his initial entrance into Silvopasture was he has sheep and those the the brows from invasive shrubs in his hedgerows and in his woods was what got him through a drought yeah uh, a couple of years yeah. ago awesome so he has a lot of really good resources on that in his book called silver pasture good deal well and austin i can say i've read through your book and everything that we've talked about here from start to finish as far as why you need this what species for what purposes how to establish them, how to protect them, how to pursue funding, like all of that is in your book. So if somebody were to ask me, I would have no problem pointing to your book and saying, this is, this is where you go. This is where you start. Um, and I'm glad you put that resource together because I agree. I don't think that's been out there. You know, we, we have this, this big scale thing, like the Steve Gabriel look at things, but not Mm. something that your book offers. So we'll have links to all this stuff so that people can find that. Um, Terrific, terrific resource. And I wish it was there three years ago when I started at this. I could have made a lot fewer mistakes. But what I what I did was I made a lot of mistakes. I, I experimented with a lot of things and tested a whole bunch of different options for planting trees and establishing them. And I take all of the experience of what I've learned and I put that in the book mm-hmm. so that you don't have to make the same mistakes that well, I did. <laughs> that's that's the best way to learn right there is let somebody else make the mistakes and mm-hmm. do the hard things. Yep. Yep, exactly. So now before we close, I neglected this question at the beginning just because we were focusing on the silvopasture definition, but oh, I'm yeah. trying trying to ask everybody that comes <laughs> on the podcast what would be your working definition of regenerative agriculture? Yeah, I I was prepared for this question <laughs> because I was listening to your interview with Isaac Tappenden mm-hmm. on the way in today. But boy, I didn't I didn't put a an answer down on paper, which I should have. If I was if I was to give a a short answer to this, I would say regenerative agriculture is in my mind, anything that is making the ecology, the productivity of the land better, right? It's just, it's just that simple to me, at least, is that it's whatever is making the land better. Um, so you can do regenerative agriculture through annual agriculture. You can do it through grazing. You can do it through silvopasture. There's all these different ways to improve the health of the land, but whatever it is, so long as it's improving the health of the land, it is by definition regenerative. And there's different practices that can do it faster, that can do it, um, that can create more whole ecosystems. Um, but I'm, I'm here to applaud anyone who is doing the practices, agricultural practices that are healing the land and making it better 
for uh, for them yeah. and the generations to come. Yeah, absolutely. And I also like to encourage people who are taking steps in the right direction. Absolutely. You know, because um, there, there's a lot of certifications that only apply to people who have already mastered it and are yep. already there. But I don't want to leave anybody behind that is even just reading and thinking in the right direction. Yep. Like that, that's 100% a successful step in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So we encourage all of you guys, no matter where you're at in your process, um, every little thing that you pick up, every little thing that you learn helps and it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And as we talk about silvopasture, it's a no-brainer that silvopasture fits in regenerative practices. Um, and honestly, if you're being holistic from a holistic management perspective, you can't be holistic by only focusing on grasses and not mm -hmm. bringing the shrubs and the brush and the trees along with yeah. it. You know, you, yeah. you, we can't break it down mm -hmm. into that much of a part because especially where we're at in our climates, trees and grasses are together Absolutely. and they're functioning together. Um, so I think they totally fit together holistically and regenerative. Um, Anything else you want to add before I, I let you plug and close? I think that's it. I think okay. we covered a lot You've here. Covered today. a lot of ground. Um, so I'll let you just sign off. Austin, tell us where people can find you, the best way to stay up to date, the best place to find your resources, where you want them to look. Absolutely. So right now, our main place is at treesforgrazers.com. That's where we have, we have uh, all of our articles, you can read the book. You can buy the book. Um, that's and you can you can reach out to us that way. You can send in the contact information. We're not really on social media right now. That's something that we're going to be looking into more in the future. But right now, sure. treesforgrazers.com is the best place, and you can sign up for our email list, and then you can keep up to date with um, all the things as we as we grow, as we develop. Um, there's some really cool opportunities that we have coming up here. Uh, looks like we have a lot of opportunities for growth and to to help build this silvopasture momentum and the movement. Um, so there's going to be a lot of new stuff happening here in the coming years. Good deal. Well, Austin, thank you so much for sitting down. This means more to me because I know you already talked all day long, and now you're having the same conversation again with me. So thank you for being patient and being a trooper. Um, thank you. Thank your family for uh, spending time with me and away from them, and I'll, I'll let you get on with your evening. But thank you, sir. Absolutely. Thank you very much, man. Thank you very much. All right, guys, I hope you found this episode with Austin to be super helpful with either your understanding of silvopasture or coaching you through your implementation of silvopasture. I apologize for some of the clips. There's a little bit of a hum in the background. We were recording in the hotel, and that's just not a controlled environment. So some of that was a little bit beyond my, uh, my ability to change or my editing skills, let's say that. But thanks for uh, carrying through the episode with us. If you need to get in touch with Austin, like he said, go to treesforgrazers.com. He's got a lot of great articles on the website that talk to you about the tree species and what they're good for. Um, he explains a lot of these concepts there in articles as well. But also available on the website would be his, I'll, I'll call it a workbook, because it's not just a, a sit down and read it once kind of thing, but it's something that walks you through step by step this tree implementation process that he described here in this episode. So make sure you go to his website, check it out, get yourself a book, um, check out Regensylvania on social media, drop us a line there, and check out Kencove if you need any supplies to fence out your trees as you implement silvopasture, if you need some braided twine or some reels to keep 
animals from roughing up your trees. Check out KenCove.com for all your resources there. Let me know how you guys like this episode. Austin is my go-to guy for silvopasture, and I'm excited to see all the things that he's going to get into here in the near future. Um, Give him a buzz if you need anything silvopasture-related, and I will catch you guys on the next episode of the Pennsylvania Grazier Podcast.